Well, two weeks ago, I told you that I was 90% sure of what I would be preaching today. Uh, I'm not going to be preaching what I was 90% sure that I would be preaching today. So I'm glad I didn't say what I was thinking. Uh, there's wisdom when you're not 100% sure. I knew that, that something just didn't quite uh, feel right about what I was thinking in my own spirit. So in the meantime, the Lord has laid it upon my heart to preach through 1 Timothy. Now part of that is that we are starting uh, officer nominations and we'll be going through training and have an election in the coming months. And 1 Timothy is a great book to look at, especially chapter 3, that tells us all the requirements for the office of elder and deacon in the church. So that's one motivation. But as I read through 1 Timothy, I realized that we as a church, when we're striving to reach out, striving to grow as a church, that 1 Timothy has some great things to say to us, great things that can help us as a church and as individual believers. So I hope this series on 1 Timothy will be an encouragement to your heart and to this church and to uh, your home church. If you're visiting with us today, uh, may you take these messages back and uh, this message today back and and be encouraged to serve in in your own church. Well, let's read 1 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the King of the ages... Immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. 
This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith, among whom are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. The the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Well, every uh, elder, and maybe even some of you deacons, some of you probably have one at home, has a blue binder, a three-ring binder, and on the outside it says, uh, The Book of Church Order of the Presbyterian Church in America. And in this binder is all kinds of information about how the church is run. It's, it tells you uh, how to form a church. It tells you how to elect uh, elders and deacons. It tells you how to run a session meeting. It tells you all the things that you're required to do as a church. It tells you how to, how to enact church discipline. It tells you uh, what's proper in worship and what's not proper in worship. It really is just a manual to tell us how we are required to do things decently and in order in the Presbyterian Church in America. And we like to do things decently and in order. That's uh, kind of uh, our hallmark. Well, this book of Timothy is kind of a book of church order for Timothy. Uh, Timothy was left in Ephesus. He was there to lead the church in Ephesus. And Paul writes him a couple of letters here that will be, well, the first letter we'll be looking at. Of course, there's 2 Timothy as well. But those letters were to help him as he led the church. What was he supposed to be doing and how did he go about doing it? And, and this is uh, what the book's really all about. He's going to, in chapter 3, here's the, the, here's the type of person you want to appoint as elders and, and deacons and so forth and so on. Well, this chapter 1, Paul is concerned with false teaching. That is in Ephesus And these false teachers were leading people astray from the gospel. And and the word gospel means good news. The good news about Jesus. They were getting uh, away from the good news about Jesus and talking about other things, other other, uh, doctrines, other matters that were not important. And they were missing the main thing. And so Paul is charging and urging Timothy to oppose these false teachers that were leading people astray and even making shipwreck of their own faith, as he says there in the final uh, verses there of chapter 1. Look at verse 18. This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare... Timothy was in for a fight. This was not a simple matter. This was not something that was uh, not important. But it was of the most, of highest importance. Wage the good warfare. It's going to be a battle, Timothy. A battle for the truth. A battle for the souls of men and women. Wage the good warfare. Holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made shipwreck of their faith. And he gives a couple of examples. So, as we look at this and we think about Paul's urgent plea to Timothy to protect the truth, 
it's a good lesson for us as a church and as individuals to see what is the most important thing that we're proclaiming as a church. What's the message? What are we to be talking about? What are we telling the world? That's what we want to look at. The central message of the church. And that's the first thing I want to talk about. And then, as we understand what that central message is, the opposition that we need to be on the lookout for that will dampen down and cause us to lose the central message of the church. That's where the Ephesus church was. They were in danger of losing the message, the gospel, was what we're talking about here, the good news of salvation in Christ. Well, you'll notice there in verse 15, I think this is one of the greatest sentences in all of Scripture, where Paul says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Now, the first couple of words there, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He uses that phrase five times in 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and the book of Titus. Those three books are called the pastoral epistles. Paul is writing... Uh, to to give them direction as Timothy and Titus are leading the church. So they're pastoral epistles. They they were pastors. And so he says it over and over to to make uh, make emphasis. The saying is trustworthy. It's the word for faith. You can believe this. This is uh, a matter of faith. The saying is faithful. The saying is trustworthy and deserves full acceptance absolute full acceptance. There's no shadow of a doubt about it. You should embrace this truth. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the most important thing that we say. That's really all we need to say because there's nothing greater than that. Many of you know that I planted a church in England or I I was the pastor, the church planner of a church in England. Other people helped as well. Uh, that church was, uh, be- began 20 years ago. That's, we went, just went over to England to celebrate that. Uh, the church grew uh, in the town, and they ended up merging with another little church that was struggling. And uh, that church had a little building. And in that little chapel building, they, they uh, had a, have a large pulpit. And right behind the pulpit, on the wall, was this I don't know what you'd call it. It it was a beautifully uh, calligraphy painted picture or painted banner. It says, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So when we were uh, were, uh, visiting this past Easter Sunday, one one of our friends in the church was showing me how they had come into that little chapel building and they had redecorated fixed it all up. It was beautifully done. And he said, you know, we had a debate about whether to keep the sign above the pulpit or not. And I was like, I'm so glad you kept it there because that's the, that's the greatest statement about the, that the church can make. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the gospel. That's good news because everybody here, everybody in the world is a sinner and needs to be saved. And Christ Jesus is the only way that any of us can be saved. So today, 
If you are under the weight of your sin, if your conscience is weighed down, uh, if you feel trapped by your sin, you can be saved by Jesus. That's his sole purpose for coming into the world, was to save sinners, those whom he talks about in verse 8 and following. He talks about all these people. And he's, he's talking about the law there in verse 8. Uh, the law is good, but the law can't save you. Why can't it save you? Because nobody can keep it perfectly. And that's the requirement. Perfect obedience. We've all broken the law. We've been lawless, verse 9, and disobedient, ungodly and sinners, unholy and profane. We've dishonored our parents. Maybe we haven't murdered anyone, but we've certainly been angry enough to. Jesus said, even if you hate someone in your heart, you've committed murder there in your heart. Sexually immoral, that's rampant in our day and time. Homosexuality, enslavers. Would that our forefathers had paid attention to that verse. Enslavers. They defended slavery instead of condemning it. Liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. That's healthy, the word healthy there. Healthy doctrine, life-giving doctrine. Sin destroys us. Sin kills us. Sin brings death. But the gospel, verse 11, the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, that's life-giving. That's sound doctrine and saves us from those sins and any others. That statement, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, should be upon our lips and lived out in our lives. If you want to know, if you want to know a, a short way to tell somebody the gospel, just say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's what it's all about. Kent Hughes in his, in his commentary tells us a little story about the power of that verse. He writes, Thomas Bilney, known as Little Bilney due to his diminutive stature, was born in 1495. So this is pre-Reformation. Because he had a scholarly bent, he studied law at Cambridge, became, becoming a fellow of Trinity Hall in 1520. But neither study nor ordination brought him peace. Then he began to read the Latin translation of Erasmus's Greek New Testament, and Bilney describes it this way. I chanced upon this sentence of St. Paul, O most sweet and comfortable sentence to my soul, in 1 Timothy 1. It is a true saying and worthy of all men to be embraced that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the chief and principal. This one sentence through God's instruction and inward working, did so exhilarate my heart, being before wounded with the guilt of my sins and being almost in despair, that even immediately I seemed to myself inwardly to feel a marvelous comfort and quietness, insomuch that my bruised bones leaped for joy. After this, the scripture began to be more pleasant unto me than honey or the honeycomb. Well, Bill, Bilney immediately became a central figure in a group of theologians who met at the famous White Horse Inn, which stood on what is now 
the corner of King's Parade and Rose Crescent in Cambridge. And there this group prepared for the Reformation in England. Bilney was arrested in 1527 and was forced to recant, but he couldn't contain himself and set off preaching again. In 1531, he was again arrested, then tried and burned at the stake. He had a famous convert, a man named Hugh Latimer. And Hugh Latimer was another great English reformer who himself was burned at the stake in 1555. The gospel was rediscovered. It was discovered by Bildney, and he spread it to others. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I hope that you've had that kind of experience where you've known your sin and maybe even been to the point of despair, and you encountered Jesus' forgiving love. And you know that Christ Jesus came into the world to, to die for me, to die for my sin. Well, some people are weighed down with their sins and they need a Savior, and we all need a Savior. Some people know it. Maybe that's you today. All you got to do is cry out to Jesus. But some people don't think they're sinners. Maybe you're even insulted by the insinuation that I would say that you're a sinner because, you know, you have never murdered anybody and you're a pretty good person. That doesn't mean you're not a sinner. Everybody's a sinner. We've all fallen short of God's standards of holiness. Paul, if Paul needed it, if Paul needed God's grace and mercy, you need it. Because Paul was much more righteous than you. Paul, yeah, he, he persecuted the church. He called himself a blasphemer and an insolent uh, opponent of the church. But he was a righteous person. He was a good person. In fact, he talks about it in Philippians 3. He says, if anybody thinks they can have confidence in their own flesh, in their own works, in their, in their own pedigree, it's me. I have more than anybody else. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. Now that's a Jewish way of saying I was the best. You know, we talk about Jesus being the King of kings and Lord of lords. So he's the ultimate king and he's the ultimate Lord. The Song of Solomon. Uh, the Hebrew title is not Song of Solomon. It's Song of Songs. It's the greatest song is what it's saying. So anytime you have that in the Bible, it means the ultimate. So he was the ultimate Hebrew. As to the law, a Pharisee. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. He was blameless. You could stack him up against anybody else and he would be more righteous than they would be. And he's bragging about it. But he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. He had that. A righteousness that comes from the law? No, but that which comes through faith in Christ. A true righteousness, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That's the righteousness we need. Our righteousness is never good enough. 
We need someone else's righteousness credited to us. That person is Jesus Christ who came into the world to save sinners. Because not only did he pay the penalty for sin on the cross, he fulfilled all righteousness. He never sinned his whole life. Everything that he did when you embrace him by faith is credited to your account so that you are counted holy in God's sight. Not through your own righteousness, through Christ's righteousness imputed to you by faith. Paul knew this, and, and it seems, if you read his letters, that he was more acquainted with his own sinfulness the older he got. Now, some people think, I think, I think we all have probably fallen into this thought that we think, okay, the longer I'm a Christian, the more I should feel like I've got it together. The more I should feel like I'm, you know, more righteous. The opposite is actually true. The more you grow, the more you should grow in humility and the recognition that you are a sinner. It makes sense, doesn't it? If you think about it, think about a light. Now, if you look at, I just had this suit clean, so it's pretty clean. But if we really got the light close to it and you looked at it closely, the closer you get to the light, the more the dirt shows. That's what happens with someone who gets closer and closer to Jesus. You see his glory. You see his holiness. You, you see your own sin. So here's what Paul says. In the year 55 A.D., he wrote to the, first, he wrote to the Corinthian church, 1 Corinthians 59. I am the least of the apostles, he says. Now, that's a pretty good least of the apostles. I mean, there's what? A, there's a dozen or so of those. And he's the least of them, but, you know, he's in the top 13. That's good. In 60, about five years later, he writes to the, to the, to the Ephesian church, 3.8. I am the very least of all the saints. Least of the saints. He's a saint. This is the least of the saints, but he's still in the company of the saints. And then in this, pa this passage written a few years later, three, four, five years later. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. This is getting closer to the end of his life. I'm the foremost sinner. See, he knew, he knew his own sin. He knew his own need for a Savior. The more Paul matured, the greater was his sense for his need for the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And that's why he rejoices. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointed me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent. But I received mercy. He was reveling in it. I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. Most of us don't act ignorantly and in unbelief. We do act in unbelief, but... It's not ignorant. We know what we're doing. We're rebelling against God. We need Jesus. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. If Paul needed it, you needed it as well. This is the message that we proclaim as a church. This is the message that the world needs. Now in Ephesus, and this is the second point, it's very brief. In Ephesus, there were people getting off that message. And what were they doing? Look at verse 3. 
We've got to be on the lookout for losing that message. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. If we're teaching something different than that, we've lost it. We can pack it up and go home. And, and, and we're no longer a church even. If we're not telling people about Jesus dying to save sinners. If that's not our chief message, then we've lost the plot. So they were preaching a, a different doctrine. And they were devoting themselves to myths. It would have been Jewish myths. He uses the same phrase to Titus in the book of Titus. And endless genealogies. So they were speculating speculations rather than the gospel, the stewardship from God that is by faith. How easy it is in the church for us to get off the main thing. You know, I think primarily of people who get really, especially in our day and time, Russia's invading Ukraine, we got a pandemic, we got people giving us shots, we've got the government, which we don't trust. Uh, you know, all these factors, we've got conspiracy theories, flying. And a lot of people are saying, oh, they're trying to figure out the end times and all the prophecies and how it goes. And that's all they want to talk about. They, they're reading the newspaper and, and making, you know, uh, speculations about what's going on and when the Lord will return. Well, you can speculate all you want, but it's just really a waste of time because you can't, you're not going to be able to figure it out. You're not going to come up with 100% certainty that, okay, this is, come, this is happening, this is happening, this is happening. People have been thinking this for 2,000 years, that, that we were in the last days. We are in the last days, but this is it. This is it. We've, you know, we did it back in the 80s, didn't we? I was afraid I would never get my driver's license because the Lord was going to come back before I get to drive on my own. See, we can get hung up on that. Now, I'm, we should be ready all the time because Jesus could come any time. And I heard one preacher say one time, because he was all, he said, when I was a young man, I was all wrapped up in, in prophecy and trying to figure it all out. And somebody said to me, you need to get off the planning committee and get on the welcoming committee, which I think is a great statement. So these people had gotten all into speculative stuff. They probably had their conspiracy theories and all kinds of manner of thing that they were talking about. And, and they wanted to be teachers of the law. They had these things and they wanted everybody to listen to them. But they, Paul says there in verse 7, <laughs> without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Somebody comes to you preaching something that takes you away from Christ. It's false. We've got to be on the lookout for that. We need to be on the lookout that we are on message. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. I hope you know that message today. I hope you can say with the Apostle Paul, verse 17, to the King of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. That doxology. May it be in our souls and our hearts that we want to give God all the glory because we didn't earn it, we didn't deserve it. It's from overflowing grace in Christ Jesus. Call upon Him. Call upon Him and He will save you. He will forgive you. He will wash and cleanse you. And He will bring you to Himself in your eternal home with God forever.
Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this reminder of the gospel and how we can easily mix our message or lose our message. We can be distracted by so many things. Or, Lord, we think we don't need it. We pray that you would help us, Lord, to see, like the Apostle Paul saw, he, all, he needed grace all the time, needed your forgiveness, your salvation all the time. Lord, I pray that we would all be convinced of this and that we would experience your grace in such a way that would fill our souls with a longing to share it with others, a longing to, to, to say to our friends, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So Lord, we pray that this gospel message would be spread far and wide, especially here along the Gulf Coast where we all live. And we pray that it would go into the world as well. We know that you're building your church and that you're calling people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we pray that we would see you doing that here today and in the coming weeks, months, and years. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.